Welcome to Centre Stage, a program for the International Centre for Women Playwrights, a virtual non-profit organisation dedicated to supporting women playwrights around the world. Centre Stage celebrates the work of members by showcasing excerpts of their work, followed by an interview where we can hear about their ideas and sometimes their process. I'm Jenny Monday and in this Centre Stage we meet up with Hortense Gerardo in the lead-up to productions of her plays at the Umbrella Arts Centre. Hortense is one of ICWP's members in the United States. To begin with, we have audio of two of her short plays. Hortense's work is copyright, and if you're interested in performing any of her plays, you can contact her through womenplaywrights.org or her official webpage, www.hortensegerardo, or one word, H-O-R-T-E-N-S-E-G-E-R-A-R-D-O.com. Here is the first play. It is a one-minute play called I See You. I See You by Hortense Gerardo. That damn spot. Out, I say. But, Carol, what do you think? Good. It was good. You're full of shit. Chardon, who are you? I'm a role of toilet paper? Really? You're just a pile of shitty paper. Is that really you? No. I'm fresh. You want me. You need me. Take me. Take all of me. Good. Okay, your turn, Purell. Level 10. Really? Can I have any effect on you? Sure. Sure. I mean, you stop. Most bacteria and fungi. But you're in my Here is the audio to another short play, Counterpoint. Counterpoint by Hortense Gerardo. Read by Tina Burkhalter and Kendall Winbush. Don't go, Woody. Here, I made some cookies. Sit down and have a rest. You were right, Mom. Please. Leave me alone. I said some bad things. I was angry, but I'm not angry anymore. Come on, I made your favorites. I don't like cookies, Mom. Since when? You've always liked cookies. No, I've always eaten your cookies to be nice. You've never asked me whether I like them. Are you telling me you faked liking cookies all these years just to be nice? then you are one hell of an actor. You just said that you aren't angry anymore. I'm not angry. You're angry. I'm not angry! Who's acting like the kid now? Don't go. I'm sorry, Woody. I'm very sorry. No, you were right. I didn't get into the school where I wanted to go. 
should have moved out right after graduation. I just said that. I didn't mean it. I'll never understand why you only apply to one school. Why should I settle? Going somewhere I don't want to go. Because you might have enjoyed going to another school. You made it so hard on yourself for no reason. You think not willing to compromise is for no reason? There are other, lots of other good schools. I'm still hoping to get in. You said it was brave of me to try again. Yes, but it will only work if you stay here. You can study and draw and reapply, and I'll take care of everything until you get in, if that's what you want. It's what I'd love to, Mom. To stay with you, let you take care of me, do all the cooking, cleaning. God, I'd love it to continue. You're being sarcastic. Only a little. Then why don't you stop this big show of cacking and stay? Because I can tell you don't really want it. What do you mean? You're my only child. I adore you. Stay for as long as you want. That's what you say. It's true. And I think you believe it. But, Mom, deep down, I know you're not proud of me living here with you. We fight all the time now. We never used to do that. That's not true. I far prefer you live with me than live on the streets. That's what I mean. You assume if I don't live with you, I'll end up on the streets. That's just a figure of speech. It finally dawned on me. If I continue living here, eating your cookies, freeloading off of you, I don't have any real incentive to get in. I could go on like this and never grow up. I think you just did. Woody, right in front of my eyes just now. I think I'm going to cry, Woody. <laughs> my lower lip is trembling. My mother saw my lower lip. When my mother saw my lower lip trembling, she'd yell, Fiona, don't you dare. So I'd bite my lip until the trembling stopped. Sometimes my lip would bleed. I don't want to bleed. Mom, I have something for you. I want you to take care of it. Until I get back. You're coming back, right? I just said, take care of it till I get back. Where are you going? Don't you want to know what I'm going to give you? Where are you going? Barcelona. What? I thought you were moving in with Jesse or Sam or one of your other friends. I'm going to study architecture in Barcelona, Mom. I'll read and study the buildings. I'll work on my portfolio and reapply to the school. You're doing this because you're angry at me. It's a good plan, isn't it? How will you live? I'll stay at the hostel there, the student hostel. It's cheap and I can pay for it using my wages as a waiter. It's cheaper to live there than here. And Miss Lopez can finally be Proud, yo hable espanol. You'll need a working visa. And if you're working as a waiter, you'll be too tired to study. They hire waiters all the time, especially if it's less than three months. Billy did it and had a great time last summer before he went to college. I really want to do this, Mom. I really want to do this. I'll make it work.
And if I fail, you can always come back. I know that. But please don't hope that I fail. Uh, of course not. So now are you ready for what I was going to give to you? I don't know that I'm going along with this plan of yours, Barcelona. It's not your decision to make anymore, Mom. It's mine. Take care of Egon. He doesn't require much looking after. A little drink every once in a while. Egon, please don't make me take care of him. I have a black thumb with plants. Only because you overwater them or give them too much sun. Here, just do this. Feel the soil? If it's dry, give him a drink. If it's damp, leave it be. Do you feel it? Ouch! The damn thing bit me! It'll remind you of me when I'm gone. It was kind of you to pretend all those years about the cookies. It wasn't all pretend. I don't like the taste. But I love that you made them for me. Goodbye, Mom. Don't say goodbye. Please don't. It sounds so final. How should I say it then? Go now, quickly, son, before I try to stop you. Now we have a short interview with Hortense. She was in San Diego and I was in Australia. We met via Zoom. There may be some accidental environmental noise. I started with asking her if she could tell us a bit about the works we'd just been listening to. So that um, the call for that play went out, I believe in either late March or early April of 2020. Like we're talking within weeks of the lockdown. And it was at a time when people thought that this was only gonna be happening for you know, a couple of weeks, maybe a month or two at most. And I don't know if you recall that in those early days, there was a big run on toilet paper and Purell. And so they wanted us to write one minute plays or the call was for one minute plays that was capturing this moment in time. And so I just remembered, okay, I just wanted to lean into like some of the more humorous aspects of it because, you know, the darker aspects were just so overwhelming. Like I didn't even want to go there, you know? So I thought, what would, what would I want to see? And I wanted to see something that was humorous, a humorous take. So I was also in rehearsals at that time um, for other plays that were just getting canceled. And I could just remember at the time, you know, being in the rehearsal room, talking to actors, you know, about their motivation, about, about, you know, whatever, how to embody their roles. So I came up with the roles of, you know, Charmin, and it was a toilet paper brand, and Purell, 
as characters who were basically auditioning and now we're just like hitting the big time. Not everybody wanted them, you know? And how this virus was the director of this, you know, production. And um, it was my very comic take at the start of the pandemic. Uh, I don't think I'd be writing quite that way about the pandemic today, but you know, I think in those early days, so there were so many questions. I can I can remember being told that the production that I was um, heading up, that was supposed to go up in early April, was probably going to be pushed like maybe two months, maybe you know, in late May, early June, we'd be able to reschedule. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, the world just did not anticipate what it was really going to be about. So, but I think it's a really interesting um, little window into that moment in time where just like, we didn't know what was going on. And it was, it, in a weird way, it was kind of fun staying home because it was sort of like an extended kind of pajama party, you know? And, um, you know, at least that's the way <laughs> I saw it at the time. I was stranded in San Diego. I had just applied for a job and, um, you know, I couldn't get back and I just didn't know what I was going to be doing. So, so anyway, this opportunity came up and I thought, well, I need, I need to keep writing. I need to stay in theater. So there it was. Great. And then the, the next play that you've got in the list is called Counterpoint. So how did that, how did that come about? Ah, that play has a very interesting origin story in that it's based in part in reality. My son really just wanted to apply to one college the year that you know all seniors in, in high school are applying for college. And he was very adamant about only wanting to apply to one school. And so a lot of the dialogue in there is is it's almost like docudrama, you know? But you know, it's different from the play in that eventually he, you know his his college advisor was able to convince him that it's a good thing to apply to a few more. But in the initial part of when he was insistent that he only wanted to apply to one school, um, he made a lot of sense. And I remember writing this play as a way to just prepare myself in case he really did go through with his plan, you know, of only applying to one school. What is the worst case scenario that I could imagine and it was that he wouldn't get in. And then, you know, I'd be terrified about what he was going to do in that year. Where was he going to live? And, you know, he actually had a plan. And I thought it was actually a really great plan, but I'm so glad he didn't have to resort to it. <laughs> okay, so Toasting Man began as, um, it was a call out for plays that, you know, there was an announcement by Flat Earth Theater that they were going to be creating these productions. And I think we had to submit um, samples of our work, you know, just to see whether they wanted to work with us. And so then um, seven of us were selected and then they told us about the plan of what they wanted us to do. And at that point, you know, we could accept or decline. All of us accepted who were in this initial round because we were interviewed. I was interviewed. I did not know how many people had applied for this um, opportunity, but I remember being really grateful that I was selected into it. And 
So it was really in response to a call out, which said that they were going to interview people. And then um, it was developed jointly by the group. Um, the, the seven of us were all, we weren't assigned. We got to choose which colored room that we wanted to work on because it was based on an Edgar Allan Poe story, The Mass of the Red Death. And there are seven rooms in it. And um, when they asked us if we had any preferences for what room, I knew instantly which color that I wanted. I wanted the orange room because um, this was during the pandemic. I think it was during the summer of 2021. So it was the second wave, you know, of the pandemic um, had come. And just when people thought that we could just get back into regular society, you know, the there was a second variant that came out that said, no, it's not over yet. So I was missing the summer parties at that time that I used to um, have on the Cape, on Cape Cod. I used to host a party called Toasting Man. It was like a mini version of Burning Man. <laughs> so, so I thought I wanted to create something like theatrical that would be an homage to those parties that I was missing out on. And I came up with this idea that it would be these three characters who would be trying to recreate a party by, by filming each other at a party. So I wrote it specifically for the Zoom platform. It wasn't intended to be performed live, but the way the director came up with it was actually even more clever because she had the characters um, filming it on their cell phones of each other as though, you know, in the directions that I had written in the play, but it was in fact all filmed in a studio. So that was pretty incredible because it was at a time when they all had to be testing to make sure that they were negative before they could all meet in a closed environment. So just when I think back of all the efforts people did to create theater during that time, it's it's humbling and it's a real honor that they were willing to do that with the work. And the work for Umbrella Art Theatre? Ah, okay. So this play was also a commissioned work. Um, I had um, been invited to write first a very short play, which the Umbrella Stage then produced for the Boston Theatre Marathon. And then they commissioned a one-act play from me, which was my very first play in the horror genre. And um, they liked that. And so that was called Incantations. Was it called Incantations? I can't remember now the name of it, but it was a one-act play. And, um, and after that, um, the director of Umbrella Stage announced that they were going to be commissioning a full-length work. And he asked me whether I'd be interested. And I think that year, because I had worked successfully with that company, first on a short play and then on a one act, and I was able to deliver on time and, you know, was able to deliver rewrites in a timely manner. Um, they trusted me that I could, you know, deliver on, on whatever it was the contract required. And I was, I felt very supported working with Brian Baruta and the, the group at Umbrella Stage because they were very respectful of the work um, and the time, like they were consider considerate about the time that it takes for me to write. Um, and so it just seemed like a, a natural melding. It's their first world premiere of a commission work and it's my first fully produced 
you know, full length work. And so it's a really big deal for me as a playwright to finally, after all these years, have a work fully produced. And not only that, it's fully produced, you know, with an entire Filipino cast. It's being directed by a Filipino. There are several members in the, in the crew who are also at least partially Filipino. And this is really landmark for me because not long ago, when I first started having readings, you know, of scenes of this play, before I ever knew it was going to all come together as a full-length play there, you know, some of them had their origins as 10-minute plays. I was told to reconsider writing a play about Filipinos because it would be really hard to cast it. And I actually had one person say to me, you know, does, do they have to be Filipino? I mean, can't can this be like an Irish family? <laughs> and, and at the time, I... I was starting to second guess myself. I thought maybe, maybe it'll never see the light of day if I, you know, insist that this should be a Filipino family. And so this, you know, this piece was kind of like gathering dust in a drawer because I just didn't think anyone was going to pick it up. So when Brian asked me if I would like to work on a, on a new commissioned work, I had a couple ideas for full length plays but I had several of these short pieces that I'd been wanting to pull together. And what we see is what's going to be produced is Middleton Heights. When we had the first staged reading of the play, finally, uh, last week, I was in tears because I realized that these Filipino actors had just an innate feel for, you know, the, the cadences and the prosodic quality of speech of people who are Filipino. And it just made all the difference in the world in the way that I was writing, because I had heard, heard these voices, you know, of Filipino speakers. But in the past, it was often read by non-Filipino actors. And so I just didn't realize how much it really matters, you know, when you're writing of a certain people, how much that uh, inherent, I don't know what it is, it's in the DNA. <laughs> And other upcoming work? What is going to be shown as part of um, the Without Walls Festival that's produced by La Jolla Playhouse is going to be two parts of a 12-part work. It's a much bigger work. The Heracles Project basically takes the idea of, of the hero Heracles, who we know as Hercules, and who we also know in contemporary times as the person who had undertaken these fantastic tasks, you know, the 12 Herculean tasks as, as they're referred to. But at the time of Heracles, when it was originally written, um, Heracles was known as the murderer of his wife and children. So this project asks the question, were the tasks a form of, um, you know, a pro like expiation for the sins, for the crime of basically killing his wife and children or what were the murders a result of a kind of post-traumatic stress disorder like a PTSD response that you know forced him to kill the family and um, the Heracles project takes this question about the you know the um, the origin of these feats and puts it through the lens of the modern day issues that we face today, like 
climate change issues and um, identity politics and things like that. I and nine other artists are each taking on one of the tasks. Some of us are taking on two tasks. But um, so what's going to be happening in April for the Without Walls Festival in 2023 is a proof of concept for two of the tasks. And the one that I'm doing is called Glacial Incantations. It is the ninth um, Heraclean task in which Her Hercules or Heracles, which is the Greek version, uh, was asked to steal the belt of Hippolyte, queen of the Amazons. And the way I've interpreted that task is to look at what is referred to as the Doomsday Glacier or the Thwaites Glacier. The Thwaites Glacier is an, a glacier in Antarctica. The Thwaites Glacier is holding back seven other glaciers. Um, they're wedged in the southwestern section of Antarctica, but it's, it's melting very rapidly because of, uh, of a belt of warm salinated water that's causing the glacier to melt at a much more rapid pace than scientists had anticipated. And that's why it's being called the Doomsday Glacier, because if the Thwaites Glacier goes, sea level rise will occur very rapidly in a way that will affect port cities globally. And so um, my, my piece is going to be a multimedia um, performance piece that will incorporate ASMR. They're a type of recording that is intended to calm people as they hear some of the ways that scientists are addressing trying to stop the melting of the Thwaites Glacier. And that's going to be at, accessible during the Without Walls Festival, April 27th to 30th. Um, and it will use augmented reality as well as ASMR recordings. So I'm hoping that people will enjoy that and learn something about what, you know, how awesome science is to uh, forfend against the melting of the glacier. Um, and a good adoption of um, technology into theatre as well. So, Exactly, exactly. So I'm really excited about that piece. And um, if all works well, people will be able to see um, an augmented reality superposition of the Thwaites Glacier onto San Diego Bay while they're hearing the recording, the ASMR recording um, that I'm creating for this, for this piece. Uh, the next month, you're going to have the hour between dog and wolf. Performed. Yes. Yes. So that was um, also uh, a commissioned work. And it was um, done by, well, it was commissioned by Pulp Theatre. And I was invited to develop a piece last summer um, in a four-week play development um, session. Um, there were three of us playwrights who had developed short works during that time. And the challenge was to create a piece that would, that basically didn't utilize any special effects that could be done on radio, that was intended to just give an, uh, an impression of urgency, that the, you know, people who heard the play would know that action needed to be taken without using any kind of set or anything like that, just the power of the word. And it was a very powerful um, play development um, series for me because I really benefited from feedback from my cohort of fellow playwrights. And 
Matt Haynes, who is the director of Pulp Theater, who really had us lean into the genre of, you know, a kind of pulp, <laughs> you know? And so it was really good for my writing. And then they did a Zoom recording of it last summer in August. And then it got picked up by the Boston Theater Marathon for production in May, May 7th. And all of that, the Boston Theater Marathon, in case um, people don't know, is it's the signature event in Boston that is intended to raise funds for the Theater Benevolent, or the Theater Community Benevolent Fund. And it's a fund that helps artists, you know, theater artists um, during times of financial need. So it's wonderful because 50 theater companies all volunteer their time to put together 50 short plays. And it's supposed to be reminiscent of the Boston Marathon, you know, the running of the marathon. So this is the theater equivalent. And it was begun by the great Kate Snodgrass, who um, was the director of the Boston, um, Boston Playwrights Theater for several years. Recently retired, but still very active. <laughs> and you're an award-winning playwright. Tell us about the ICWP award you won came at a very good time. Um, it was during the pandemic that I received it. And, and it really just, you know, any kind of award, you know, in playwriting just helps um, validate what you do sometimes when you're not getting a lot produced. And during the, the pandemic, we weren't seeing a lot on stage because of the social distancing measures. And I started thinking about, I signed up for a TV writing course and which was good because I learned how to write, you know, TV pilots. And I, I took a, you know, stand-up comedy course, but that also requires being in a, in a venue. And so having the, the ICWP um, grant was really very, I don't know, validating at a time when so many of my productions were getting canceled because of the pandemic. And that was very helpful to me in, in just any, you know, recognition of the work. Um, the following year, I received a, a grant from the Mass Cultural Council, their playwriting fellowship. And it was, um, it was a sizable grant that's given to playwrights. Um, it's a competitive one. We had to submit samples of our work. And for me, it's probably the highest honor for a playwright to achieve you know, from Massachusetts which was really great because I had just recently moved to California for my job, even though I still retain my residency in Massachusetts. It'll always be home to me. <laughs> and so it was nice to have that connection to Massachusetts to have won that award. Um, more recently, I have won a, 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 an award from the Sloan Foundation um, to help develop community outreach in the work that I'm doing as the director of the Anthropology, Performance, and Technology Program at the University of California, San Diego. And so that funding is helping me create community outreach uh, programs so that people will understand um, the crossroads of performance and technology that I'm, you know, I'm creating or we're developing in the creative research arm of my program. And, oh, I'm so proud of this recent one. I have been named a Changemaker Fellow of the Anti-Racist Pedagogy um, Learning Community 
at the University of California, San Diego. So I'm, I'm receiving some training on how to improve um, discourse on anti-racism, how to make it an active part of my teaching and in my um, communications with the community. I've been speaking with Hortense Gerardo. Um, I'd like to thank her very much for meeting with me via Zoom. Hortense is one of our members from the United States. Thanks for listening in to Centre Stage. More will be coming soon.